You have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to only look at verses 1 through 37. There's so much in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount runs from chapter 5 to 7, as we said this morning. And it should not be ever confused with the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus prayed all night before he chose his disciples to be apostles in Luke 6. There's definitely two distinct accounts. Often Jesus said many of the same things, not all in the same order, not all in the same quantity. Many use them in different contexts. So you have to, when you compare the scriptures, the gospels, you have to keep that in mind. Sometimes they're very subtle differences, but they're major differences and you must mark them. Um, There are those who have taught the Sermon on the Mount as a social and moral gospel. And simply, we just need to teach it and everybody can live it. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think I can even get started on the first one without Jesus Christ. It's impossible. In fact, the only way the first one, which is the foundation, as we'll see, can only be done by the work of Jesus Christ as he convicts us about our sin and our losses, our depravity. And then there are others who um, teach that the Beatitudes are simply for the kingdom age. And they're not for today. Um, I reject that also. We've already began where John the Baptist says the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Well, he didn't say the kingdom of God's at hand. And then Jesus later on will say the kingdom of God's in the midst of you. And so the kingdom has arrived. It's not completely here. It is present, but yet to come. There is a lot of um, kingdom theology teaching today. Some of the big names in Christian radio. And they all they talk about kingdom principles and kingdom this and kingdom that. And they believe that um, we are going to bring in the kingdom. And that brings also replacement theology often that God is through with Israel. I reject both of those. My Bible tells me that the world will become worse and worse. Let's just take a wide view at us before we get started here. Let's start in the garden. Perfect. Greatest potential. Adam and Eve get better? Nope. All right. God killed an animal, got him squared away, promised a Messiah. Things get better? Nope. Came to Tower of Babel. Dispersed them. Not before he killed the whole world. Did it get better with Noah and his kids? Nope. He ended the Tower of Babel. And you can go on and on and on through all the period of history, nearly 6,000 years, and man is just a rebel, and he does not get better with time. He only gets worse. The only hope is Jesus Christ. I mentioned this morning about the young person who committed suicide and at the junior college here, another lady I was talking to, a police officer yesterday at a wedding that uh, comes to Pasadena and got a jumper at the suicide bridge. And all the things that go on demonstrating the hopelessness of our youth in this world because man is evil. 
man doesn't offer any hope. And when they do and they cling to it and they put all their energies into it and all their money into it or whatever it is and then they find out it isn't, there's despair, hopelessness. And so the ultimate lie of Satan is for you or anybody else to take their life. Where Jesus, on contrary to that, came and he gave his life that you might live. As a Christian, regardless of how bad our life is, suicide's not an option. That's a pagan practice. We have the greatest hope, the soon return of Jesus Christ. And so let's keep um, biblical truth alive and not mix it in with the philosophies of the world, the psychologies, the anthropologies, and all the other junk that comes into the world. Drop the plumb line. I'll give you one simple guess. The plumb line will never be the one that's crooked. Everything else will be. Very, very important. So the Sermon on the Mount. It's for believers. Chapter 5 here, verse 1 through 12, the Beatitudes, the citizens of the kingdom. He says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Notice the disciples come out. The settings of the Sermon on the Mount is there in Galilee, uh, beautiful rolling hills there all around the sea. Um, the multitudes refer back to chapter 4 at the end there. And yet um, they came all over. They were receiving healings and teaching and everything else. But yet the disciples come out of the multitudes. You and I were in the multitudes of the world. I don't know when you got saved, but you were doing what you were doing. You were into whatever you were into, and you were doing your thing, and you were going your own plans, and all of a sudden you heard the gospel, and God messed you up for good. And now you come out of the multitudes to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. You are here tonight. Many are not. Some that are sick and can't come, I thank God for the internet. If you're looking over the internet and you could be here, shame on you. You're lazy. You should be here. The internet is not a substitute for church. It's for people who can't get out or too far away and can't find a church. That's what it's for. Disciples come, they sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 2, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Did you come tonight to hear Xavier? I hope not. You guys got a good glimpse at the second service. I messed up big time. I thought I had the wrong sermon. I just couldn't compute. All of a sudden, you have you been there, you know, you just, you, you, you think that something is real and it really isn't real? Crazy. But if whoever you come and sit under... First of all, I hope it's someone that you can, can, can trust and, and, and know that they walk with God and they're teaching the Word of God. But even when you come and you sit under them, though you may respect them and pray for them, it is the voice of Jesus that you're coming to hear as the Word goes forth. I could be teaching out of the Sermon on the Mount. I can be teaching out of the book of Leviticus. I can be teaching out of the one first chapter, the only chapter of Jude. And if you came to hear, God will speak to you regardless of your problem. Because it is God's word. I believe that wholeheartedly and I've seen it for over 40 years. And so I hope that tonight as you hear the word that God will speak to you regarding your need. He taught them disciples, a disciples, a learner, a pupil. 
That's why we're to go and make disciples of all nations. Not converts. Not altar calls. I'm not against those two. I'm just saying we've confused them. Okay? Very important. Now verse 3, he begins the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, the word blessed is oh how happy, exclamatory. It's kind of like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks down the counsel of the ungodly and receives the seat of scornful. Is the life in the law of the Lord. He should be meditating day and night, so on and so forth. The blessing. Oh, how blessed the person that's come to know God. Oh, bless the person. And here, the blessing, the happiness is for the person poor in spirit. That means that you've heard the gospel and the gospel convicted you and you repented from your sins and you came to agree with God that you were separated from God and there was nothing you could do to merit His grace, His salvation, His love, that you were just hopelessly and helplessly lost and not able to do anything in and of yourself. And that He is your only hope, the only way for forgiveness in heaven. That comes by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, ladies and gentlemen. The opposite of this blessedness of poor in spirit is pride. Pride hears the gospel and says, stick it in your ear, I don't need that. I'm good. I'm accomplished. I pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's the pride of man. The first beatitude is foundational. Notice the first four are going to be vertical towards God. Then the other one will be horizontal towards man. Blessed are those who mourn, and they shall be comforted. Though who are these? These are the happy people who? Those who have truly mourned. They have they have felt the pain of their sin and the consequence of their sin that my sin was against God. David said against you and only you have I sinned even though he sinned with Bathsheba and against her husband. First it's vertical. That by the conviction of the Spirit of God I, I realize the pain of my own destruction by my own sin and the, and the hurt and the damage that it brought to others' life. And I ask God for forgiveness and I receive His comfort because of His grace and His forgiveness and His goodness. Where others will point a finger and condemn me and say, you, God will never mention my sin ever. And thank God we're not God. And when we play God, we just mess people up. He says he buries your sins in the deepest ocean, casts them as far as east as the west, and puts them behind his back, and he never remembers them. Wow. You think men and women would be running to the cross? No. They're not. The way to heaven is it's not like the 210 on Monday morning. It's the way to heaven is like the 605 used to be in the 60s when it opened up. Nobody was on it. Very, very few. Blessed are the meek. Verse 5. For they shall inherit the earth. The meek. Those who are gentle. Power under control, literally, is used for domesticating a horse. Moses was the meekest man, we're told, in Numbers 12.3. 
And yet he did many mighty things. Meekness does not mean weakness. It means that you cease from your own energies and you stop retaliating and resisting and fighting against God and you just rest and depend upon God because he can do so much better than I can do for myself. But the old man, the old nature is there to try to get hold of things and I have to learn to rest and be patient in God. I don't care how old you are, how old you get to be. That old man will be as alive and as available and as willing to offer himself to you until you give your last breath. So I must resist the old man, Satan, my flesh, and turn to God always, always. You can break up the word, meek, me ek. Resting in God completely. Verse 6, the beatitude now, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, vertical. You're hungering after God for righteousness, living to please God, the things of God. Like newborn babes desiring the unadulterated word of God, as First Peter 2.2 2 says. As Ephesians says that the purpose of the church is to perfect the saints, so we gather together that we be not tossed to and fro with every one of doctrine, learning and examining and, and being that light and to be able to give an answer to every man for the reason, the hope that lies in it with meekness and fear, as First Peter 3.15 says, presenting a body a living sacrifice, holding and accepting God, which is a reasonable service, and being that light and being that salt is what we're going to see as we move on. That we are ever fixed, that whoever's in trouble, they can see that light. It's not a light that's going to be flickering. Paul says, knock down. The J.B. Phillips loose paraphrase says, but not knocked out. I like that. <laughs> it's good. Hungering after righteousness. The things of God, the world will offer you everything it can. You must partake of solid food. But the author to Hebrews in chapter 5, 13 through 14 says, Some of you, you should be eating solid food, but you're not able to hold it down. You're like newborn babes when you aren't newborn babes and you still are sucking on milk. And sometimes that happens with Christians. They don't study the word. They don't spend time with God. And they're 20 years old, but they're scraping their knees and still soiling their pants and everything else. They just, they're 20 years. You know, there's a lot of teachers in the public school education who have taught for 25 years. They've taught the same thing for 25 years. They haven't grown. They haven't developed. Neither have their students. And it's the same in anything. You can put that to anything in life. And certainly Christians are no exception. Verse 6, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy means pity, compassion. In other words, where you are empathetic with that person and you see them in such distress that you come alongside and you actually partake of that emotional and physical partaking, and you meet that need, whatever it may be. 
The Good Samaritan is a good example, as you know. Um, he told the, the keeper at the end, if here's some money and if you need some more, I'll pay you back when I come. And he took care of that man. While the um, Levite and the Pharisee, they just crossed the street and wouldn't be bothered. How interesting the Samaritan, the one that was considered by the Jews to be just uh, created by God for the fires of hell. <laughs> He's the one that, that was a good Samaritan. In fact, we, we have what is called the good Samaritan law. We get it from the Bible. As much as people want to say that our founding fathers never intended the, uh, to in, in, indicate that the God that they spoke about was the God of the Bible, how many of our laws are all Christian Judeo. All of them. And so merciful. The unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Forgiven millions. He had a guy who owed him pennies. He took him by the neck. You know, after he was forgiven for all that, he takes that guy that owes him just pennies and throws him in jail. The master recalls him. How much did I forgive you? Millions. What is it I hear? Put him in jail. You see, all of us love to receive grace and mercy. Grace is what we don't deserve. Mercy is less than we deserve. But to give it out, if we walk in the flesh, man, we will destroy people. We will destroy our character. We will destroy our witness. And that's why the world really is not affected by the church today. It's not that the world has been so tolerant of us. Is that we've been so tolerant of the world that we've been trying to be so much like the world. So Christians now cuss, they drink, they do everything like people in the world. Many of the emerging churches do that. And they think it's okay. Pastors declare it, elders do it. They don't embarrass, they don't apologize, you know. They redefine Christianity, redefine the Bible, redefine the church. Wow. I wouldn't want to be them for all the money in the world. Not all the money in the world. James speaks about mercy triumphs over judgment. When you're able to pull somebody out, when you're able to say, you know what, Forget it. Don't worry about it. When you have the right from the legal aspect, when you have the justification for getting down on them or exposing them and you cover their sin and you say, God is good, isn't he? That's what a Christian's about. Nothing less. Verse 8, he says, Blessed or happy, are the pure in heart, for there shall see God. So the pure in heart, those that again are constantly depending and trusting on God. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about those who are growing, developing, maturing in Christ, serving God. They check their heart. They check by the word of God. They look to Him. They rest in Him. Um, we're never talking about perfection, but it's talking about an unmixed heart. 
It's used for weeding out, sifting of wheat, for sifting out cowards from brave soldiers. That word is used that way. So in other words, that your heart is unmixed with other interests and that, but you're totally sold out to God. Just like a husband and wife, is, when they say, I do at the altar, they are sold out to that person. Everybody's forsaken in the past. There is no other. There is no other. This is what it's talking about. In verse 9, he says, Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so these peacemakers, those who are always trying to do what's best for the others. Remember the first four towards God, the last three are vertical. I mean, I'm sorry, horizontal, towards man. So the peacemakers, things when sometimes things don't work out, you know, and you've got difficult situations, you've got difficult, strained relationships. Now, there are some relationships that try as you may. They don't want anything to do with it, but at least you've done all that you can. At all that lies in you, you should have peace with others. And then once it can't work, then you just don't harbor anything. You pray and you seek the Lord and you let God direct and guide you, but you do all that you can. And that's what it's talking about here. It is impossible with some people. They, they, don't, they don't want peace. They don't want to be one. It's just um, the way it is, you know, because of the world, because of the hardness of heart, because of the very um, setting of the world today. Our society, our culture is so depraved, so evil, so self-centered, so experienced and pleasure-oriented that it's like a drug you better not get in my way of getting my pound of flesh. It's a drug, man. And the more you take it in, the more it will hold you and bind you like a slave. Whatever level. Beer, alcohol, drugs, sex, Dr. Pepper, whatever. You just give yourself to something. It'll master you, absolutely master you. In verse 10, now he goes into the last two, some combined 10 and 11. He says, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is persecution for righteousness sake, because you're living uh, for the Lord. Because you are living godly. And the people who, who you are living godly before don't like it. Where you work, maybe where you live. Maybe it could be a husband. Maybe it could be a wife. Maybe it could be a family member. And, and, and here's the persecution. Now again, I said this morning, we really don't experience persecution in America like the church has. And that's where the church has lived all over the world. Where they're actually in prison and you know, um, killed and everything else. We, for whatever reason, only can read about those things. But there is family persecution at times and other things. But um, again, it's for righteousness' sake because you're living out your faith. And that's okay. It's better to stand alone than to stand with those who would have you to bow. Um, it doesn't matter. There was this young kid that just started school in high school, and and his friends said to him, he says, um, 
they said his name. They said, how do you do it? How do you, how do you not cuss? And, and one of the kids says, oh, you're a Christian, huh? You're, you're one of those church kids, huh? And he goes, yeah. Great witness. Great witness. <laughs> to be a Daniel, to be a Deborah, to be a Joseph. Wow, you have children, sons, daughters, you pray for them. You get on your face and pray for them. You have grandchildren? Man, pray for them. Brainwash them. Lay hands on them. Pray with them. Encourage them. Hmm. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And so the reproaches, the slanders for the sake of Jesus because you're a Christian. Not for your godly living, though they're both tied together, but very specific because you say you're a Christian. Because you say that Jesus has saved you. Very, very specific. Reward in heaven. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're in good company. Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah. All of them. And all the people through the ages, through the generations who have stood for God, who have declared the word of God, missionaries, marriages, on and on and on. Beatitudes, they're not do attitudes. You can only be this if you're a Christian. You can only do it by the power of God. This is not talking about external things you do. This is not because you're so good, because you're so nice. It's because you are so rotten that you realize you can't do this unless Jesus Christ is in you and you yield to him. It's all about the heart as he will continue the Sermon on the Mount. It has nothing to do with just outward things. It has to be sourced in the heart, who you really are, not who you're thinking or, or wanting people to think you are, but who you really are. And so in verse 13 to 16, you have the influence of the citizens of the kingdom. He says, um, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under by men. And so here, verse 13, the believers are to be salt, you and I. Salt purifies, preserves, it permeates corruption. They used to salt the meat. They didn't have refrigeration. You salt it. Salt has become insipid. What happens? It goes flat and it becomes mixed in, diluted with other things, and it's good for nothing. In fact, what they do is they grab them, they throw it out in paths to just kill weeds and any vegetation, and people could walk. In fact, that's how the Romans salted the land of Israel in 132 to 35 B.C., the last uh, uh, horrific destruction of Jerusalem, and salted the whole land of Canaan and renamed the land Palestinia, 
That's where you get your whole false history of the Palestine nation. The Palestinians of those days would have been the Jews left behind, not the Arabs. So do a little history on what, who a true Palestinian really was originally. <laughs> it was the remnant of the Jews left behind. It would be an insult for anybody to call themselves a Palestinian before 1955 and yes, Arafat. It's made up history, just like fake news. It's fake history. The Trojan horse to America, ladies and gentlemen, is education, public education. All the water source has been contaminated. No education, just indoctrination. So you as Christians have to put your mind and heart into the scriptures and judge everything by that. You let nobody divide you. You're a Christian. There's only two identities for you as a human being, male and female. Your color does not count. Your race does not count. We're all of one blood. Everything traces back to Adam. So much for inclusiveness. When they talk about inclusion, they're talking about perversion, racism. The Bible doesn't teach that. Man teaches that. You're my brother, you're my sister in Christ Jesus. And we have been bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ, regardless of where we come from, what has happened, or who we are. You will never find any stronger bond than that of believers in Jesus Christ. It's always been the evidence in history, and it will continue to be so over and over and over again. And so verse 14 and 15, he says, um, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. The believers are not only salt, but as light. The believers in Christ are the only light the world has regarding their lost state, spiritually. The only way to be saved. It is the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of hope, the gospel that transforms people's lives. It's not religion. It's not philosophy. It's not psychology. It's not education. It's the gospel. The believers corporately as a church are a city set on a hill. A visible witness, impossible to miss. When I drive home on the freeway at night tonight, I will get on the on-ramp and I'll head east. And I'll get on the fast lane and I'll boogie down. And when, as soon as I get on there, I see a big light that they have on the tracks. I never miss it. It's impossible to miss. That's the church of Jesus Christ. When it is functioning under the power of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the love of God. And people who are there to honor the Lord and to seek Him. And to do all that they do for the glory of God. That makes all the difference in the world. Light dispels darkness, as you know. Light reveals what is hidden. Light guides. 
That's what the word of God does in the gospel. Jesus, the light of the world, he said in John 8, 12. So literally, we're lights because of him. But he gives us this attribute of we are the light of the world through him. Notice in 15, the true use of this light is a lit candle. You do not put it under a bushel. Why would you do that? The only way you do that is if you're ashamed or if you don't want to be that witness or it's not convenient. You put it on a lampstand to illuminate the house, he says, so that others can see. Today, many of the new homes don't have real good lighting. They used to put overhead lighting in every room. Now, because they want to rip you off for more money, they just kind of just plug in and they don't put anything, you know? So when you get in your house, you got to put head lights above and this and that. Because when light comes from the top down, it dispels all the darkness. It's good. If you just have a little lamp over here, then the shadows over here don't get to hear. But when you put a nice lamp right in the middle, that light dispels 180, 360 degrees all the way around. And nothing is hidden. This is what the Word of God does. It exposes all darkness, all sin. Look at 16. He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the believers to bring glory to God. So much of what goes on today in the church is glory to self. You know, I remember Pastor Chuck when we first got saved, and that was the early 70s. And um, he, he just came out of Pentecostal background. And he wasn't for all this show and glamour and all this elaborate stuff. And, um, and he was very strict on that he didn't you know he wanted to give God glory in everything and yet as time went on everything started moving a little more to glamour you know and the concerts this and that and there's nothing wrong with music and different things but you but it's moved away into showmanship and and all this professionalism and everything else and it's incredible where the church is at today and um People love to have glory. We're to be as transparent as we can be. We're to be as as um, uh, invisible, so that the Spirit of God can deal with people's hearts, and the Spirit of God through the Word of God can direct and guide them and speak to them, so that no attention is taken away from God, so that no distractions. And that God can deal with people's heart and he gets all the glory. And whatever you do, that he's the one that receives all the praise and the glory. Verse 17, now down to 20, you have the revelation of the law in relationship to Jesus. 17 says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy the law, uh, but... To fulfill. So the purpose of Jesus' coming um, was not to abrogate the law and the prophets. The word destroy there means to dissolve or to render vain. That's not what he came for. The same word is used for our body as a tent in 2 Corinthians 5 1. Uh, when our, our body is dissolved, it's just, you know, it's taken down. 
Jesus came to fulfill the law. He says there in verse 17. The law represents the moral and ethical standard required by the law itself. As well as all the shadows and the types of him in the law. Hebrews 10, 1, chapter 1, chapter 10, there gives you a lot of things, the shadows and types of things to come. Everything in the Old Testament, the furnishings were all spoke of types of Christ, the emblems of Christ, uh, prefiguring him. And, um, and he said, in fact, in Hebrews 10, 7, he says, then he said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. All of the volume, all of the Old Testament <laughs> is all about Jesus Christ. Uh, from Genesis to Revelations, the red thread that just runs all the way through. The prophets represented all the spoken prophetic um, things about him, his kingdom, his mission. Jesus came to fulfill, to fill to the top, to render complete. Jesus will fulfill the law. And he did so as a man, the last Adam. All of it. You and I, the law condemns us. The law points me guilty. I've never had a policeman give me a ticket for good driving. I break the law before I even get in my car. We're lawbreakers. The law accuses us. And then we get pulled over and we say, I can't believe you pulled me over. I, I deserve at least 10 tickets a day. The law demands perfection. Any takers? Not me. Look at 18. He says, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jote or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And so the promise of Jesus to fulfill the entire law, there were things um, to be fulfilled till, notice there, heaven and earth be dissolved. Now, he fulfilled over 300 in his first coming, but there's still a lot of prophecies that will be fulfilled. But he fulfilled all the ones that were needed for the first coming. Um, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman under the law. Galatians 4, 4 says, right on time. Matthew quotes prophecy after prophecy. It is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. He's writing to the Jews. To the Jews were given the scriptures. They were to know the scriptures. In fact, Jesus wept. He said, if you would have known this your day, the things that were prepared for you, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And you should not see me henceforth. You say, blessed you, comes in the name of the Lord. And he wept. He wept over Jerusalem. Just like you as a father and mother will weep over your children when they do something stupid, horrific, because you taught them. You've prayed for them. And you will weep in pain in silence because of what they've thrown away, of what it will cost them. And we know this. The Jod is the smallest Hebrew letter. The tittle is the marking over the letter to distinguish it. Everything will be fulfilled. Look at 19, we have the proclamation of Jesus, of two classes of men regarding the kingdom. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. So the least, those who teach to break the least commandments, 
by the way they live. Then the greatest, those who teach by word and by their life on how to live. Two types of people. Then you have the sharp warning of Jesus to his disciples in verse 20. For I say to you, the highest authority, the greatest authority, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. He's talking to his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is to his disciples. You not only see it in verse 1 and 2, you see it at the last two verses. The crowds are in the background. But his disciples came and were taught by him. He's speaking to them. The warning against hypocrisy and duplicity as the Pharisees and scribes, such will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the key verse to the Sermon on the Mount. In 21 to 48, you have the correction by Jesus about the wrong interpretation of man's relationship to the law. We'll only get to verse 37 tonight. But let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of fire. 21, you have the proclamation here, the first example from the law. It's murder. The expression you have heard that has been said, those of old, was teaching here about the teaching of the elders and the Mishnah. The commentaries to explain the Mishnah were the Talmuds, Babylonian, the Jerusalem one. The law was turned into 613 commandments, 248 positive, 265 negative. Kind of like our legislation regarding Congress, whether it be to buy or sell or anything else. You're just drowned in all these legislative things that strangle people. The prohibition of murder was the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13, Deuteronomy 5, verse 17. The one murdering notice is in danger of judgment there in verse 21, comprising the lower court of 23 magistrates is what is indicated here. 22, you get the correction and clarification of the law against murder. Jesus placed himself as the ultimate authority. But I say, this is always the ultimate authority. Do not quote men. You can quote them for little illustrations, but for God's word, you quote God's word, not men. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment, he says. The word angry there means slow burning, never going out. 
Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Let not the sun go down your wrath. We got to be careful. You have to settle issues. There's some things very difficult in life. Things that are done. But again, we go back to the Beatitudes. We've been forgiven. We need to be merciful. We need to realize that bitterness and anger only hurts me, not the person I hate or I'm angry at. It destroys me. So we have to be careful. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council and fool in danger of hell fire. The Raka means empty-headed, shallow brain, blockhead. It's a term of contempt. The council was the highest level of the Sanhedrin, so the judgment keeps increasing here. It's incrementally more severe. Fool, mori, get the word moron from it, was an insult of character in a moral sense, a rebellion against God, godless literally. Hellfire Gehenna was the severest judgment for eternity. He goes from the lesser all the way to the ultimate, the judgment of God. The Valley of Hinnom, as you know, was used for the worship of Molech, and many infants were sacrificed there, and therefore they also were burned there on that site. And it was also the trash center of Jerusalem, the dump site, and there would be dead animals and everything. That Jesus says that was where the worm never dies, and there's gnashing the teeth. He makes a comparison between the... the Valley of Hinnom and the Lake of Fire, which is Gehenna. And the worm never dies. How can you have darkness and fire never is out? It's a paradox, but it's real. Jeremiah chapter 7, 2 Chronicles 28, 33, 2 Kings 23, 10 speaks about Gehenna. All the idolatry went on there. Everything is against God. Jesus is showing that murder begins in the heart and that there are different levels of judgment ending with God. Whoever gets away with whatever in this earth, listen to me, there is a checkout counter. You can walk around Target, Costco, anywhere you want. Pick up anything you want. Put it in your cart. But you have to go through this stinking check line. Sooner or later, you are not going to get out of there unless you go through the check line. The ultimate check line is when you stand before Jesus Christ and I. Everybody has the big mouth down here. Nobody's going to say anything before God. Trust me. Trust me. 23 and 24, the instruction for resolving the problem of murderous heart is given to us. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has uh, something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go to your way first to be reconciled for your brother and then come and offer your gift. So here you come to worship and you know that you know your brother has something against you, then you need to just kind of just kind of just go get squared away before you come. In other words, you want God wants you and to make sure that you and I 
have everything taken care of. Now again, we do all that we can. If people refuse that, then we're free from that. Then we just continue to pray and hopefully one day we can do that. But that we try as much as we can to resolve the issues so that we're not thinking that we can come before God when we've got all these things that are wrong between us and other people. And then we're to return and then pick up our offering and then worship the Lord and offer it to him. Then he accepts it. Then it's, it's meaningful because he knows that we're trying to please him and do the things the way he would want us. Uh, for the vertical to remain uh, in, in, intact and viable, the horizontal has to be taken care of. Sin is an obstacle between me and God. And unless I deal with those sins, then my communication is severed. Fellowship is severed. It's just the way it is. We can't um, take that lightly. Verse 25 through 26, we have the illustration. Uh, it's of expediency to deal with one's adversary. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are um, on the way with him, lest um, your adversary deliver you to the um, to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you are thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, um, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And so the uh, warning is less procrastination brings severe consequences. How many people have brought tragic consequences on them because they procrastinated? A ticket that was only $5 ended up being 300 A late payment for 300 you know, you could have put $50 away or whatever it is, and you can take it down the line. The lesson is from the lesser earthly court to the greater court in verse 26. Now we have the proclamation of the second example from the law. It's adultery, verse 27. He says, you have heard that it has been said... To those of old, you shall um, not commit adultery. Um, the same expression is stated. You have heard the teaching of the mission of the elders in the past. It's adultery. This is the seventh commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy 5:18. Because when you get married, you pick up the greatest and the most intimate binding of husband and wife than ever before. You'll become one flesh. You're to honor the Lord. You're to live um, to be holy unto each other, sanctified, and to honor God in everything. In 28, he says, But I say to you, here's the ultimate authority again, that whoever um, looks at a woman uh, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as you can see, as the Beatitudes were spiritual and inward, so is the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The law is only, it can be checked by external actions, but Jesus takes it further. It's from the heart. The law is spiritual. We're carnal. And so Jesus goes to the source, the heart. Jesus places himself against the authority, but I say, and Jesus said, adultery begins in the heart. 
Jeremiah 17:9, the heart deceitful, desperately wicked. Jesus says, Matthew 15:19, from the heart comes evil thoughts, fornications, adultery, so on and so forth. You go over to Galatians chapter 5, you see the works of the flesh. Over and over again. Jesus, notice, tied the tenth commandment to the seventh. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He tied it together. When you're lusting. Exodus 20, 17 and Deuteronomy 5, 21. And in a world that we live today with the media, with all the junk that's around, you have to bring your thoughts into captivity. You have to ask God to help you in every way. Having eyes full of adultery, 2 Peter 2.14 says. It's permitted today. It's encouraged today. It's um, handed out like candy. No big deal. The captivity is the thoughts and everything that comes against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Putting on the armor of God, doing good battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 down to 18. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities of power, dominions of darkness and high places. 29 to 30, you have the illustration to mark the seriousness of sin of the heart. He says, if your eye, your right eye, causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it before you. If it is more profitable for you uh, that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand um, causes you to sin, Cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more probable for you than for one of your, uh, your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Gehenna again. Now, Jesus is saying the word sin there is scandal on It baits you, it traps you, it allures you. The two examples of plucking out and cutting your hand out marks the severity of sin and the destructiveness of sin. That it would be much better, and he says two illustrations and twice he says it, it would be better for you to enter in like I lost my eye when I was 23. If it would, you know, he's, now he's not talking about literally to pluck your eye out. I can pluck my eye out, but you can't. Um, but because I've got another hand, I've got another eye. Okay? Now one of the origin, one of the church fathers uh, uh, thought it was literal and he castrated himself. Now, I think about... A year later, he said, oops, but it was too late. But, you know, you want to make sure that you understand what's literal and when it's figurative, okay? So you need to be a good student of the law. Uh, but Jesus is talking about the severity of sin, that if you don't, it's like cancer. If you don't cut it out, gangrene, your toe, you're a diabetic, you drop a weight on it, it is black. You need to cut that toe off. Otherwise, it'll be the foot and then the leg and your whole body you cannot deal with sin as a friend it will take your head off verse 31 the proclamation of the third example from the law's divorce he says furthermore it has been said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a writing of divorce but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except Sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries that woman who is divorced commits adultery. Wow. The proclamation here, the expression furthermore, just like those of old, the man is given 
his wife a certificate of divorce according to the law. The provision is found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. This was really a provision for the woman not to be living under a cruel husband. And so she would be, not be called an adulteress. Plus, um, it would be an orderly manner of having a decent society because Israel was a theocracy and they wouldn't be like the world. And if you read that, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, we'll get a little bit more when we get to 19. It'll be more in depth there. But it's speaking about if you find any uncleanness in her. Let me first of all say that the majority of people interpret it wrong. They say it's adultery, sexual sin. Listen, if you commit adultery in the Old Testament, there was no talking. You were stoned to death. So let's drop that, okay? There was no need to talk about it. Are given a divorce. You were stoned, okay? And I'm not talking about loaded. I'm talking about dead, all right? And so really it was a warning to the man. You think twice before you let her go. Because if you let her go, you're going to force her to commit adultery and you're going to force the other person who marries her to commit adultery. And even if he divorces her, you will never be able to take her back. Wow. Think how good you have it before you let it go. That's what the law was saying. But people turn things around. Jesus will say later on in Matthew 19, 1 through 10, because the hardness of the heart, that's why people divorce. Adultery is legitimate. The word fornication here does not mean that you're not a virgin. It means that you commit adultery. The context is marriage. When you have sex and you're married, that's adultery. Pornea, you get many words of sexual thing. Pornography comes from and everything else, okay? So it's talking about adultery. The context is marriage altogether. Now the correction and clarification of the law against adultery. Notice in 32, Jesus plays himself again the ultimate authority. But I say, Hallel was the liberal. He allowed for any reason. You know, she burns your bagels or looks at a man. You're, you're, here's, here's your right now, divorce. Two witnesses. Shemaiah was the conservative. He said, only adultery. Guess what Jesus was? Conservative. Only adultery. It's not a command. If your husband, your wife commits it and they ask forgiveness and they repent, you can reconcile. And if you can reconcile, it's always best. But if you, even if they ask forgiveness and you feel you cannot accept it, you are free from your husband or wife when they commit adultery. Is that clear? It's not a command. It's an allowance. All right? Very, very clear. And so, Jesus his dirty dozen, the disciples, what do you think they were? Conservative or liberals? If you read Luke, they said, Shish! It's not good to marry. That's right. You better think twice. They were liberals. They went with Hillel. That's how you remember the liberal. Hillel. Now, Shemaiah was a conservative. Wow. And so marriage is very sacred. Marriage is very important. And when you get married, you are 
done. There's no looking around. So before you marry, you better make sure that it's not just a face or a body you're marrying. Unless you turn over in bed and you say, okay? Because you're going to look at that mug for the rest of your life. You make sure you marry because they are Christian. Because they love Jesus more than you. And that you're bound together in the love of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to make it to 37. It's okay. I tried. Father, thank you for your grace and love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word that is so rich and so instructive and so strengthening for our lives, Lord. Pray for every person here, for the young people, and Lord, that you would just deal with our hearts and that we would honor you in all things. We thank you for your grace and love for us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead and he died for your sins and he paid the price for your sin, as the Bible says, then the Bible says you can be saved. You can call upon him and he will forgive you. He will save you and he will just do a number on your life. But you must come through the cross. The cross is always death. Death. But as you come to the cross, you'll find out that you will live in a greater way than you've ever lived before. (laughs) Absolutely. And he'll be right with you to help you all along. If you don't know Jesus and you want to be born again, this is your prayer of repentance. Whether you're here or over the internet. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.